The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. My name is Greg Gifford. I have the privilege of bringing this session to you in regard to counseling from the attributes of God. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Ephesians 5 to start with. And as you're turning there, I'll just tell you a few things about myself and how I'm connected to this conference. First of all, I have the privilege of teaching biblical counseling. Could you guys turn me up a little bit more? Tell me whenever you can hear me okay in the back. Are we okay? We're trying to fight the ring. I'll try and move up just a little bit, so I'm not getting too much feedback. You guys hear me back there okay? Thanks for being here, by the way, making this possible. So I have the privilege of teaching biblical counseling as... Uh, that pertains to master's university, so that means that I'm the full-time professor for our undergraduate students. We have about three different modalities for biblical counseling. You can get your graduate degree, you can do it online, you can do it residentially, or you can come as a traditional student on campus and earn your bachelor's degree. So the students that come on campus and are earning their bachelor's degree, that's called traditional, and I have the privilege of teaching them. That's my full-time job. But my moonlighting job, I was telling uh, those in my session last night, is that I'm an associate pastor at my church there in Newhall, California, where I'm the pastor of counseling and life groups. And I like to tell you that also because that's important. Sometimes it's, it's one thing to teach this stuff, but it's another thing to actually be practicing this stuff. And for me, it would be a punishment to only teach it and not get to practice it. So I, I have great joy in getting to do both and seeing God bless in both of those areas. The reason why I'm at this conference is because I had the privilege with Curtis Solomon to do the pre-conference. So we, we discussed PTSD, and I'm a military veteran. He's a military veteran. I've done some writings and work on that. So we came and uh, we shared biblical perspectives, how to help, um, hope to equip those. Maybe some of you were at that pre-conference, so just hoping to equip those with a, a biblical worldview on how to think about these things. The last thing, and I'm not going to bore you this entire session with details about myself, so... Hang, hang in there with me. The last thing is that, uh, you know, as a biblical counselor, I've, I've now worked in a church and I've worked in a counseling center. And in Charleston, South Carolina was the last counseling center that I worked at. So where I was a full-time biblical counselor. And that means that that was my job, that I met with people on a daily basis and counseled them like many of you do through the Bible as the Bible pertained to different issues that they face in life. So one of the couples that I was meeting with uh, came to the counseling center because of a relationship that our center had with a church there in Charleston. And uh, the wife was a stay-at-home mom, uh, very kind lady. She had two kids that she took care of, and then the husband was a firefighter. And what he uh, did at one point is that he was actually the one on the line doing the work of firefighting, but he was injured. Uh, he injured his back, and so... He was now sidelined doing more of an administrative capacity and serving in that wasn't very satisfying to him and so he was mildly frustrated with his job, uh, started to pour over into marriage, started to pour over into financial decisions that he was making, just being irresponsible in certain ways. And uh, inevitably what came to a head is that he found his wife was reading romantic novels and that through those romantic novels, she was being fulfilled by those romantic novels and not by him. And so I'm not going to get into the gory details of what that looks like. But in our counseling time, he was very hurt 
So there was this amalgamation of everything that was taking place. So kind of this dissatisfaction in work, now being rehabilitated to go back to the job that he once loved, uh, being dissatisfied in himself, struggling with a little bit of his own confidence because now he was in fact injured. And then on top of that, he finds out that his wife has been reading these romantic novels and finding fulfillment in those and not finding fulfillment in himself. And what took place is through that, uh, he became very bitter. And whenever they came to counseling, he actually just kind of wanted me to endorse divorce for them and said that, hey, this is, this is a cause for divorce, that what she has done to me is a reason why we shouldn't be together. And of course, you know, as biblical counselors, that's not the first place that we go. And so naturally, that's not the first place that I went. So as we began to talk through this, what we found out is that, yeah, she was wrong and that there were certain things that she had done in regard to that literature that was immoral and that she was finding satisfaction and fulfillment in some of those areas that were denigrating him as a husband and his role in her life. But what took place is that he actually was really bitter and struggled to forgive her. So if I could describe this guy for you, I mentioned this just in passing, you know, I'm not a big guy. I'm at least self-aware enough to know that about myself. You know, I'm five foot nine, 165 pounds, you know, ringing wet. Uh, This guy, however, was a little bit shorter than I am, and he was 270 pounds, he told me on a couple occasions. Just this really stout firefighter guy, kind of your man's man. And so I'm like this small, you know, wimpy-looking guy, and then we have this kind of brawny firefighter guy. And I'm wrestling with how to approach some of these things because there's one more dynamic that was taking place. So because he had injured his back, he was on testosterone. And so you have man's man on testosterone. <laughs> like, I don't have a chance, you know? Like, there's, I'm going to die in this, Lord. I know I'm going to die in this. That's the way I feel about it. So uh, what takes place is um, he's just struggling with bitterness. He's struggling with, with practicing biblical love, seeing this from God's perspective. His wife was repentant. His wife was turning away from her sin. And yet he was still clinging to it, talking about how she had sinned against him, how he had been wronged, how this was her fault. And I said, well, I want you to do something. You know, biblical counselors, we love homework. If you've been trained through ACBC, you know you got to assign some homework every session. So I'm thinking, I, I, here's what I would love to happen. I would love for him to have a better understanding of God's forgiveness toward him. And then I think if he really grasped God's forgiveness, then that would change the way that he is wanting to or not wanting to forgive his wife. So I said, okay, husband, here's what I want you to do. Your homework assignment is to actually go study the way that God forgives you. So if if you want to qualify that as the attribute of his mercy, if you want to qualify that as him being gracious, We could even talk about justice, His forgiveness is tied towards His justice. But what I want you to do is I just want you to focus on the way that God has forgiven you. And I'm thinking, I don't know if this is going to (laughs) work. Okay, go for it, man. Now go. And uh, they go out that day. I'm thinking, Lord, please, if you would reveal yourself to him and reveal the way that you have treated him by forgiving him, uh, that would really soften his heart towards his wife. 
So he comes back the next week, and I told you he's this big, brawny, burly guy, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, how did this go? He's sitting there with this very stern look on his face like he's angry with me. I mean, there's almost, there's almost like a tension in the room. You know, he's, he's big enough to where the armed chair, he's kind of housing that chair on himself, you know? And so he's there staring at me with a grimace, and I say, okay, husband, how did homework go this week? You know, I'm trying to look like I'm calm and collected, but he looks angry at me. And he said, Greg, I, I want you to know that you sucker punched me with that one. <laughs> you sucker punched me with that one. And I'm thinking like, oh, great, here it is. Here it is. Lord, take me quickly. And he says, after studying the way that God has forgiven me, there's no way that I could withhold forgiveness from my wife. And I was thinking like, oh partly for my own safety and partly for the reconciliation of their marriage. That... <laughs> Amen. Amen. That's, that's what it was like for me to say, you need to go behold the way that God forgives you. And as you behold that, then what's going to take place is that's going to change the way that you forgive others. So when I talk about the idea of counseling from the attributes of God, I'm talking about this idea that what you believe about God, this is the Tozier quote at the top, that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Tozier goes on in the knowledge of the holy to say that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I've heard some in the counseling arena even say that we could trace back counseling problems to an improper view of God. His justice, His goodness, His mercy. Here we have a struggle with His forgiveness. That when you're sitting in the counseling room, it, it's not always this linear straight line, but there's something about their theology proper that really has to be adjusted and tweaked. So in the counseling process, many times what we're trying to do is just to help expose them to the reality of who God is as He reveals Himself in His Word. That's counseling from the attributes of God. One of the reasons why I like you to start in Ephesians 5.1 is because part of the fundamental aspects of your counseling is that you're calling people to be like God. You're calling people to be like God. Here, this is Ephesians 5, verse 1. Paul says this in the transition towards, now what does it look like to live out your Christian life? He says, Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Have you ever thought about this? That imitation is part of your DNA. It's how you operate. That God has designed you in such a way that you are an imitator. Meaning that the language that is your primary language, you didn't go to school for. Isn't that funny? That you learned it from your mom and your dad or your guardian or your brothers and sisters. And you learned it, by and large, through imitation. You would say it. They would correct you, tweak it. You would say it again. And then you went on through this process of imitation and learning through imitation. But one of the factors about you and I is that we are image bearers. An image bearer is someone who literally reflects back the image. Scripture says that you are an image bearer. You are a reflector. So what's so fascinating about this way of viewing people is that you will reflect back something. You will reflect back someone. So the process of redemption is us now helping people reflect back God accurately. 
So the Genesis 3 narrative shows us that the, the image of God and man is not gone or abolished. It's marred and broken. The process of redemption is restoring that reflection of God or that image of God in man. So what's fascinating to me is that in the counseling room, really to boil some of it down to its most simplest form, I'm trying to help someone be like God in that area in their life. Now, if you mistweet me on that one, then it sounds like heresy. We're not saying I want you to be God in that moment. That's heresy. Please don't tweet me at that one. So make sure you get this right. We want you to be like God in this area. Be an imitator of him as his image bearer, as his child. Be like your dad. We also see that 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul's call is to imitate him as he imitates God. The implications for this are significant. Be like me as I'm being like God. Imitation is part of what we're hoping our counselees will be doing. We want you to imitate. Imitate us as we imitate him. And I would say that this imitation of God means that you must know God. You must know what God is like. You must be discipled in who God is. That you must have a good theology proper in order for you to reflect back God in that specific area in your life. The reason I would say that is from this passage. So go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're familiar with this passage, it's one of my favorite when it comes to how we change. And it's Paul now using Old Testament ideology to talk about New Testament conversion and also New Testament change. So I want to read maybe six of these verses together as we start in 2 Corinthians 3. We'll be in verse 12 and then we'll go all the way down to verse number 18. And then as we go through, what I'll do is I'll pause and I'll explain some of the things that Paul's saying here. So in your notes, this is point three, uh, letter A, that 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a clear statement on the doctrine of how God transforms man. So look with me in verse 12. It says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to, excuse me, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. <clears throat> Yet to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, turn, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So pause with me just for a second. Let's explain some of this. He's making a reference back to the Old Testament, Exodus 24, where we see that the ministry of Moses was such that when he would go and commune with God, that he could do so face to face. But because of the glory of God, that Moses' skin would literally shine when he would come back down from the mountain. So what he began to do is he began to wear a veil so that the Israelites could literally look at him because of how he glue, he glue, glowed, glowed, <laughs> whatever past tense of glowed. I think it's glowed. Yeah, let's go with glowed. He glued. I can't believe he glued that day. So he's wearing a veil so that he can communicate with those Israelites after now being revealed by, being revealed to the glory of God. And the way Paul is equating this is that those who aren't believers still have that veil over their hearts. 
it remains there so that when the, the law of Moses is read, they still don't get it. But what takes place is by the work of the Spirit, verse number 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In your conversion, what takes place is that the veil is removed so that you can actually behold the glory of God. That's fascinating because before that veil is removed, you don't look at Jesus and see him as beautiful. In their case, the God of this world has blinded. I'm in verse 4 of chapter 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You can't see Jesus as beautiful. You can't see his glory. You can't see his excellency because there is a veil that is blinding you to that before you are a Christian. But what takes place is when God converts you and saves you and redeems you, that now you look at Jesus as being beautiful, glorious. You can actually behold him now. That's what he's talking about that takes place here in conversion. So one of the things that we see is that Paul says this veil idea translates to the New Testament conversion. But he goes on and he says, verse number 18, And we all, with unveiled face, making reference to Christians, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this is the process of change that I referenced, that we have conversion being mentioned here when the veil is removed, but we also have this idea of beholding the glory of the Lord, and in beholding the glory of the Lord, what takes place is that we are transformed into that same image from one level of glory to the next. So in your notes, you're going to see point B, that there's a cause and effect relationship in this passage. There's a cause and effect relationship. The cause is that you are beholding the glory of the Lord. You are exposed to who God is. Think about this with the story I mentioned earlier. Go behold his forgiveness. And then what takes place is you become a more forgiving person. Go behold his holiness. That affects your holiness. Go behold his love. That affects your love. Go behold these different aspects of the glory of God and what that serves as the instigator or the cause for your transformation. As you behold these things, what then takes place is the effect. This is number two, the effect. The effect is that you're transformed into that same image. When we behold the glory of the Lord, according to the text, then we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is God's work in us. So I go back to this idea, well, of of why does that happen? Why in the world do I behold the glory of God and what takes place is now I become a reflector of Him? It's because you're an image bearer. You're an image bearer. The idea of an image bearer is exactly what it sounds like. Think of a mirror. Let me read to you just a few verses here from Genesis. Sometimes we overcomplicate the idea of being an image bearer. Sometimes we make it say things that the Bible doesn't necessarily say an image bearer would be. Genesis 5 is one of the clearest places that we see an image bearer. When God created man, Genesis 5 verse 1, 
He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man, and they were created. When Adam lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after him image, his image, excuse me, and named him Seth. This is the way that the Bible describes image bearing. Anytime you've been to the hospital and there's a brand new baby that's born, you get image bearing theology, right? Women, you are so much better at this than guys are. You're like, it's a baby. And the woman is saying, he has dad's eyes. And we're like, uh-huh. <laughs> that's your mom's nose. And a woman can start to go through, and most women can start to go through and talk about how the physical resemblance of this child looks like mom or looks like dad. It's kind of this image-bearing suggestion that we see here. We see that Adam had a son in his own likeness after his own image. His name was Seth. Oh, and that before that, that God created man and he made man in his likeness. Now, what does that look like? What is the image of God in man? Let's open a theological can of worms and then shut it really quickly. <laughs> you ready for this? The Bible doesn't enumerate all the specifics of what the image of God looks like in us. It doesn't. We know that it pertains to our cognition. We know that a level of our physicality represents the way that God operates, but God isn't physical. God is spirit. So we know that certain aspects of our being represent God. I think the, the safest way, the reason why we put the lid back on that theological can of worms is that we say, well, we know that we are like God and that we represent Him in some way. Now, if you want to argue over, does that mean emotional, spiritual, cognitive, physical, what all does that look like? I think that you have to be comfortable saying that the Bible doesn't delineate exactly what those are. It just says that you are like God. You are an image bearer. The reason why this is important is because in the context of you beholding the glory of God, what this means is that you as a reflector must reflect accurately. Think of a mirror. You're called to be an accurate mirror of God the Father. You, the image bearer, the one created in the likeness of God, when you are exposed to the glory of God, what takes place, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, is that you, O image bearer, you begin to reflect back God. It's really important. So now when we have this idea of veil and blindness, we see that Paul is establishing this superior model for change. The superior model for change, I'm at key observations from this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18. This model for change is that, that we have unveiled faces, meaning we as believers can actually do this. Because God has removed the veil in your life so that you can accurately behold Him. That sounds kind of heady. Let's, let's make that really, really practical. You can accurately understand the mercy of God as his son, as his daughter. You can accurately understand his kindness as his son, as his daughter. Why? Because he has removed the veil from you at the moment of your conversion so that you could accurately behold him. So what now takes place, according to Paul, is that this is something that only the New Testament saint can really say of themselves. There's a superiority here. The Old Testament saints didn't have this privilege. They didn't have the privilege that a New Testament saint has to see the potential and comprehend the glory of God much more fully as we now know it in Christ Jesus. So when we see that we have this unveiled 
face that can behold the glory of God, we're seeing that we have a potential to be transformed into the glory of God. And notice the way that 2 Corinthians 18 puts it. The same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So now you have the same image, and then look in verse number 4 of 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Part of the superiority of the New Testament privilege is that we know who Jesus was and that we have the opportunity to reflect back the perfect image of God, which was Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that he's the perfect image bearer, the exact representation of God. When you become more like Jesus, you are becoming more like God. You're a better image bearer. When you behold the glory of God as revealed in Jesus, you become more like Jesus. You become a better image bearer. You're a better mirror, to say it that way. So what's important about this is that we don't just muscle our way through this, but this is something that's done by the Spirit. That's point number 4B. The Holy Spirit gives the ability to know and to respond to God's glory in Christ at the moment of your regeneration. You can't walk away from 2 Corinthians 3 thinking that this is something you do on your own. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's only by God's spirit that he reveals himself to you that you can, in fact, behold his glory. This isn't like, hey, I need to go buy that sweet book, and as soon as I have that sweet book, I'll be able to behold the glory of God more accurately. I'm an educator. I tell this to my students. It's not like at the end of your bachelor's degree that you will be able to behold the glory of God more fully. That this is something that is wrought about in us, brought about in us through the work of the Holy Spirit as God reveals himself to us. So what that does is it prevents any level of me now making this happen, me being the one who has to go find God, me being the one who has to make this happen. This is something that God does to us. And I'm going to try and suggest God reveals himself to us through certain ways here in a second. But let's talk through just maybe a bit of clarity on the idea of glory. Sometimes we use key terms and we don't always pause to explain what we mean by them. When we talk about beholding the glory of God, what are we talking about? It sounds kind of nebulous if we're not careful. I love the way that Jerry Bridges says this. He says, The glory of God is the sum of all His infinite excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. You behold the majesty, the excellency of God. That's what we're talking about when we say behold the glory of God. As God reveals it by His Spirit to you, you are seeing His glory and all of His worth, His value, His attributes. When we think of the glory, we're thinking of God now putting His worth, value, and attributes on display for you to see. I don't know about you, but if you can remember back to that first moment in your conversion where you actually looked at God and you saw Him as better, you saw Him as glorious, you saw Him as desirous, that was because the Spirit had removed the veil from you so that you actually wanted God. You wanted His forgiveness. You wanted His grace. You saw it as better. To say it in this way, you beheld His glory. I love this idea because in Christ... 
God has revealed his perfect worth, value, and attributes in full measure. God has revealed it in full measure in Christ. So write in your notes. Make sure you get the 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Also write in the Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. When we talk about this idea of God being perfectly represented in Jesus Christ. So they're not mutually exclusive. In becoming more like Jesus, we are being restored to the image of God. Because Jesus is the perfect image bearer. So now as God has revealed His glory through Jesus Christ, my goal is to become like Jesus Christ. And then I'm being transformed from one level of glory to the next to be like God the Father. So there's no either or. It's as I'm becoming like Jesus, I'm becoming more like God. Because Jesus is the perfect representation of God. That's what's important to grasp about this. The glory of God is perfectly set on display in Jesus. And in our sanctification, in our transformation, we are now reflecting back the glory of God by us being like Jesus. Maybe the simple way of saying it is be like Jesus. We want our counselees to grasp that. But what's theologically undergirding that is that when you are like Jesus, O counselee, then you are reflecting back God accurately. You are being a good image bearer. This is the idea. So here is my suggestion, and this is where I want to start to get into some of the practicals of what this really looks like. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, it really offers the theology of how we do this. When you behold the glory of God, what takes place is you're transformed into His likeness. But I want to try and demonstrate for you specific ways that this could come about in your life as you minister to counselees. So the statement that I have here is that biblical counselors should seek to expose counselees to the glory of God and call them to become like Him. Expose your counselee to the glory of God and call them to become like Him. Grab your Bibles. I want to take you to a few illustrations of this throughout Scripture. Go with me. Let's start in Ephesians 4. This is one of the passages that I directed the husband to when we talked about forgiveness. But I want you to see the appeal that's being made in the way that God's glory is being set on display and then the response towards God's glory is urged. Biblical counselors, I am undoubtedly confident that you know this passage. The put-offs, the put-ons, you're familiar, you've counseled through this. So I'm going to save just a little bit of biblical counseling legwork and let's jump into verse 31 where it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you, is Paul doing something? Behold the glory of God in the way that he has forgiven you through Jesus Christ. Behold that. Behold the way that God has forgiven you. That's you beholding the glory of God. This is a very practical illustration of what this looks like. I would even say that Matthew 18 makes a similar appeal. So we see that in Matthew 18, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Well, the parable of the unforgiving servant is actually a parable about the nature and character of God. It's one to where we see that Jesus is using an illustration of how much God has forgiven us. The irony of this is that the unforgiving servant goes out 
and he acts in a way that is inconsistent with the character of his master because the master just forgave him this great debt and now the servant is out in the marketplace squabbling with another individual over this insignificant debt. So the great tragedy of the parable of the unforgiving servant is that the servant isn't being like his master. So he incurs this great penalty. You're going to be imprisoned. Your family's going to be imprisoned. And Jesus goes on to say that, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The parable is about putting before you the glory of God as he forgives you. And then in light of the way that God has treated you, how in the world would you be able to cling to bitterness? How does that happen? Well, you can't. You can't. In light of what God has done for you, in light of you truly beholding the glory of God as it is revealed in Scripture, that He is a forgiving God, He removes sins as far as the east is from the west. When you truly behold that, you can't cling to bitterness. That was my goal when I assigned that homework to this husband. I was hoping he would see that and that by God's grace, he saw the glory of forgiveness as revealed in Scripture. That's Ephesians 4.32. So what we're saying, O counselee, let's use our super complicated language to do it. We would never tell this to our counselee. It might swing on us. Go behold the glory of God and his forgiveness. That's what we're saying when we say, go look at Ephesians 4.32. Go behold the glory of God as he reveals himself through the work of Christ on your part. Just an overly complex way of saying, forgive like God's forgiven you. But that's 2 Corinthians 3.18 coming to life. Go behold the way that God through Christ has treated you in forgiveness. And then what takes place is you're transformed into that image from one level of glory to the next. Let's do another one. I could do about 20 of these, so sorry for being nerdy. Go with me to 1 Peter. See if I can show you another appeal that's made based off of the character of God. First Peter. This is verse number 14 of chapter 1. Right, we see a, an appeal that's being made for obedience. So as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There it is again. God is revealing himself in such a way that you behold the glory of his holiness. God is holy. When you truly grasp the holiness of God, when God reveals his holiness to you, it elicits a response from you and that you become holy. That when you truly see that God is a holy God, what it does is it works in you in such a way that you're transformed into his likeness from one level of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So Peter is making an appeal based off of the character of God. Why in the world would you be holy? What's that about? Let's do this because of moralistic right reasons. Well, no. It's about the very nature and character of God. You be holy because God is holy. And when you behold the glory of God's holiness, what takes place is you begin to reflect back that holiness in your life. Why is it a total shocker that when God reveals His holiness to individuals in the Scripture, that they are undone 
they are undone when they behold the glory of God and His holiness. Think of Isaiah's, think of Peter's, think of those who have seen direct revelation of God saying, I am holy. No one rises up and says, me too. <laughs> I'm holy too. You're holy, I'm pretty holy too, God. No one does that. Because when you accurately behold the glory of God as revealed in His holiness, you see your brokenness, your sinfulness. So what Peter's making a case for is that you need to behold the glory of God's holiness, and as you behold that glory, what takes place is you become a more holy person. Think of the implications for your counselees, the ones struggling with purity, the ones struggling with holiness. It's not that they just need one more commandment of why they shouldn't do that sinful, sexual, immoral thing. They got it. Right, got it. Most of us are really good at the things we shouldn't be doing. We know that inherently. We feel bad about it. The Lord's convicting and working on us. Got it. What your counseling needs who's struggling with immorality is they need to view the glory of God as revealed in His holiness. They need to view the glory of God as revealed in His holiness. That sounds really nebulous, somewhat esoteric. We don't have to say that's exactly what we're trying to get them toward. But it's not that we just need to say, hey, flee sexual immorality. It's important. You do need to do that. But you need to behold that God is holy. And when you behold the holiness of your God, guess what happens? You're transformed from one level of glory to the next. That you become a holier person in light of seeing God as being holy. Let's do another. Let's go to Luke 6. Luke chapter 6. Here we have another call to be like God. Behold His glory. And in beholding the glory of God, it changes the way you respond towards difficult people. Dare we say, enemies. Show mercy like Him. Let's start in verse number 35. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's, just let me point out a few things that are being noted here. It's in your response to people who are enemy-like, Jesus says, be like sons of the Most High, and then there's a reminder of what the Most High is like. Let's use our 2 Corinthians 3.18 term. Behold the glory of God in these specific ways, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Behold the glory of God's kindness as you respond towards evildoers. It's not just that you need to hear, be more kind, be more merciful. That's true. That is a biblical command. That is a right thing. That we want to be bearing the fruit of kindness and patience and gentleness, and, and you fill in the blank there. But what Jesus does here is he says, let's be like God. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. You know what the really hostile, harsh, critical person needs to know? It's not just that they need to put on kindness and gentleness and patience. Amen. Okay, amen. Of course you need to pursue those things. You need to behold the glory of God's kindness. You need to behold the glory of God's mercy. 
Because when 2 Corinthians 3.18 takes root with you beholding the glory of God's kindness and mercy, what takes place is that you become a more merciful person. You become a more kind person. Kinder. More kind. We need an English teacher in here to help me out. How does that work? Because when you see that God has been overly kind and merciful to you, well, how in the world could you not be that way towards someone else? When God deals with me in such a gracious, merciful, kind way, how could I not be merciful to so-and-so? This is counseling from the attributes of God. It's where you're saying, of course pursue kindness, of course pursue patience, of course pursue gentleness, but behold the glory of God as it pertains to those various things. And when you behold the glory of God, what takes place is that you're transformed. You're transformed to be like Him in those ways. So maybe you have the curmudgeon counselee. Well, they need to know that it's not just that they should pursue mercy and kindness. They need to know that God is merciful and God is kind. And when they truly grasp that as being true, then they will be transformed into His likeness. There are a few other illustrations in Scripture. You see some of these. Um, first of all, this is one in regard to God's impartiality. I'm at point number, I think point number four in your notes. Be impartial like Him, James 2 says. You can't show partiality when the rich guy comes into your, shir- in your church and say, well, here you go. Here you go, rich guy. Great ring, by the way. Come sit up here. We have a special seat for you. But then the the lowly brother that comes in, you're impartial towards him because you feel like he's not a person of means. Why in the world can't you do that? Is it fair to biblically say don't be impartial? Totally fair. But the appeal that's being made there is that God's not impartial. God is impartial. Thank you. God is impartial. God is not going to show bias. God is not going to show deference to the rich guy over the poor guy. We also see this in 1 John chapter 4. This is probably the one that you're most familiar with. I didn't start with this one because I knew that you'd get it. 1 John chapter 4, this is the idea that you can't be unloving to your brother. You can't do that and know God. You can't behold the glory of God's love and be unloving towards your brother. Those are incongruent. That cannot happen. Why is that? The text goes on to say it. Because whoever knows God knows that God is love. Let's use our 2 Corinthians 3.18. When you behold the glory of God's love, you will be loving towards your neighbor, towards your brother. So if you're not loving towards your neighbor, of course you need to grow in love. Of course you need to pursue the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But you also need to behold that God is love. Behold the glory of God's love as He reveals it through Scripture and what takes place is you become a more loving person. So John says, the reason why you can't be unloving towards your neighbor and say you love God is because God is love. You don't know God. You haven't beheld His glory. Because if you had beheld His glory, you would be loving. Isn't that fascinating? If you truly knew the character of God, you would be loving. Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, when you behold the glory of God, you're transformed from one level of glory to the next. You become like Him. Let me offer a few more that are just really specific to Jesus and the way that Scripture calls us to be like Jesus. This is Philippians 2.5. Behold the glory of Jesus' humility. 
really that's the basis for unity being sought in the church at Philippi. You guys have one mind and do that on the basis of the glory of Jesus' humility. Be like Jesus in your mindset, the way you are thinking about this. Be humble like Him. And when you truly understand the glory of Jesus' humility, that He didn't cling to His position, but He emptied Himself, when you truly understand the glory of Jesus' humility, what takes place is that you become a more humble person. That's the appeal of Ephesians 2. Does the proud person need to hear, be humble? Of course. Do they need to hear the James 4, 6's of the Scripture? That God opposes the proud. Of course. But what they really need to understand is the glory of Jesus' humility. And as they understand the glory of Jesus' humility, then they're transformed into that likeness. They become a more humble person because they've just beheld the glory of Jesus' humility. How in the world could I be proud in light of what Jesus has done? That's the basis of Paul's appeal here. Last one. Suffer like him, be a servant like him. Both appeals that are made off of the basis of Jesus' character. So think like Jesus in your suffering, 1 Peter chapter 4. Be a servant like him, Matthew chapter 20. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. Behold the glory of Jesus' mindset in his suffering. Behold the glory of Jesus' serving. And when you behold those, then what takes place is you're transformed to be like Jesus. He came to serve, not be served, so I'm going to do the same. So I want to just show you a few things here and then try and illustrate this concept even more. This is a quote by a colleague of mine at Masters. He says this, I'm at key takeaways here. Only true change can take place as one beholds the glory of God. Whenever sinful behavior exists, one should suspect faulty views of God. So assign counselees to read portions of God's word on his attributes. Assign them to read supplemental works on God from authors like Tozier, Pink, Charnock, MacArthur, Sproul, Piper, assign Bible studies on knowing God, assign memory work and meditations on verses about God, meditating often, assign CDs, tapes on sermons about knowing God, assign good songs and hymns to read and sing. Think about this as a counselor. You know you have that counselee who's struggling with mercy. Well, they may not know what you're up to, but you're saying, hey, counselee, I want you to go study the mercy of God. They don't know that you're thinking in the back of your mind, 2 Corinthians 3.18. When you have that counselee that is extremely unloving, in the back of your mind, you're thinking 2 Corinthians 3.18. Well, I want them to now go behold the glory of God and His love, so I'm going to assign them to read maybe Tozier's Attributes of God, or I think it's Pink's Attributes of God, Tozier's Knowledge of the Holy. I'm going to expose them to the glory of God through these practical assignments and sermons and homework. I'll finish by giving just two of those here in a second. But whenever that sinful behavior exists, I don't think you have to go into this whole idea of you beholding the glory of God, and when you behold that, you'll become like that. I think you as counselor can just say, go study this attribute of God, and we'll talk about it next week. They don't know what you're up to. They just know that they're going to go study God's love or God's forgiveness or God's mercy or God's wrath or God's holiness. 
And as they do that, in your mind, you're thinking 2 Corinthians 3.18. I hope that God would use this to reveal himself to them so that they become more like him in the process. So a few clarifications for you. That this can only happen within believers. This can only happen with those who have the veil removed. 2 Corinthians 4 made it clear that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to, to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. You can't see Him. You can't see Him as being better. You can't see Him as being glorious. This is a supernatural work that God must do by His Spirit in your life. And that this is the process of transformation. And I would say transformation and sanctification are being used synonymously. This is what progressive sanctification is all about. This is Christian growth. This is the process of becoming like Christ, moving from one level of glory to the next as we gaze at the glory of the Lord. It's much easier to say, be like Jesus, and that it's also theologically accurate. But when we say, be like Jesus, we're saying the same thing as behold the glory of God as revealed in Jesus. So when I say 2 Corinthians 3.18, behold the glory of God, and in so doing you are being transformed from one level of glory to the next, I'm saying be like Jesus. Maybe you want to use be like Jesus, or maybe you want to use behold the glory of God as revealed in Jesus, but we're saying the same thing. And then the goal is the same goal, that in becoming more like Jesus, we are becoming more like God. We are being a better image bearer of God. Let me uh, encourage you toward a resource. I know you've been encouraged toward many. One is written by Jim Berg, and it's called Changed into His Likeness. Uh, Jim Berg is a faithful brother teaching out at Bob Jones, and he wrote this book back in the late 90s. And he talks about this idea of being transformed by beholding the glory of God. And he uses the idea of tanning. Tanning. Not many, maybe, maybe there are tanners among us. Um, that one, I saw one hand go up back there. Maybe unintentionally there are tanners among us. I was at the beach this weekend and unintentionally got some of that. Let me describe for you an experience. And anytime I share this, this is probably the main thing you'll remember from this session. So this is a risk I'm going to take, all right? Um, at one point in my life, it was actually fashionable to be tan. Maybe you could identify with that. Um, so as a, a junior higher and high schooler, we wanted to be tan people, and I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, so we had a pool. And one of the things that we would do regularly, my friends and I, is we'd lay out, try and get tan, be bronzed for the summer. And for those of you who are tanners, you recognize that there are actually certain products that help facilitate a good tan and then a bad tan and then making sure you don't hurt yourself. And none of those were on hand at my house. What was on hand is this form of cooking spray. <laughs> Thank you. And my junior high mind couldn't process this at that time. Or chose not to, however you want to accept it. Um, thinking, well, you know, I have a few minutes. I think I could take the risk here and just use the oil, because tanning oil is still oil, and go lay out by the pool and work on my tan concurrently. I say this mild embarrassment, but it, it worked, <laughs> just to encourage you, my plan worked, 20 minutes on each side, and I had received the tan of a lifetime, um, 
I remember being so sore and my family ridiculing me so hard for having used Pam cooking spray to help. <laughs> uh, it's so embarrassing. To this day, my uh, quote-unquote fictitious girlfriend's name is Pam because of that story. Um, not a real person. I say that because that illustration, it helps solidify this point of when you tan, just to be technical, you don't actually tan yourself. I'm not trying to get ultra philosophical here, but you expose yourself to the sun. You put yourself in a place to where you will be tanned. Think of my wimpy junior high body not too detailed. They're out trying to be tanned by the pool that day. Well, I mean, in all technicality, I don't tan myself, and that's true for you. You don't tan yourself. That You expose yourself to the sun, and in so doing, you are tanned. The way that Jim Berg describes it is that's 2 Corinthians 3.18 taking place. That technically, you don't change yourself from one level of glory to the next. What takes place is that you have this direct exposure to who God is, and through that direct exposure that God tends you, so to speak, that God changes you. So there's a quote here that says, direct exposure to the sun will have an automatic effect on our skin, but change in Christ's likeness likewise is not something that we do to ourselves. It's something that happens supernaturally through the agency of the Holy Spirit. When we expose ourselves to God's word as he reveals himself, his glory. Think about that. The word of God is God's self-revelation to us. That I, This is me laying out before God. Sorry for the weird picture. This is me laying out before God. That in exposing myself to the glory of God as revealed in Scripture, that what happens is he transforms me into his likeness. Because I'm being exposed to who he is. So one of the things that we're hoping to get our counselees to do is to read their Bible. Read your Bible. Develop this habit. Read your Bible. We're not just trying to cultivate a habit of you reading your Bible. You could supplement that with other things. We're trying to get you exposed to who God is as he reveals himself through the word. And as they are exposed to who God is, they're transformed into his likeness. So Berg goes on to say, a believer who's not manifesting godliness in some area of life, they can only do one thing. They can spend more time in the Word by asking God to illuminate their heart and their mind to who He is. To who He is. We want them to lay out before God with their Word. God's self-revelation. We want them to go behold the glory of God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. And as they do that, they will be tanned. They will be transformed, not of their own doing, not something that they've done, but that God is transforming them as he reveals himself to them. That's what it means to counsel from the attributes of God. So counselees are often struggling with this right theology proper. Maybe they don't even know that. They're not coming to you saying, I am not beholding the glory of God's forgiveness. But when you hear bitterness and when you hear resentment, you think, you need to behold the glory of God's forgiveness toward you. You need to behold the glory of God's mercy. When you have the wife that's coming to you and she is she's been sinned against for years and she's struggling with the goodness of God, 
she may have no clue that she needs to be exposed to the glory of God's goodness. But maybe you're going to take her there. And you're going to say, you know what? You need to behold the glory of God's goodness. And as you behold that, then you are in turn transformed to be like him. You know, frankly, for those struggling with anxiety, this is one of my favorite things to do with them. It is so hard to just say, stop being anxious and that to work. Be anxious for nothing. It's like now I'm thinking about it more. Ah! The way that Jesus says is don't be anxious because your father clothes the grass. Your father feeds the birds. Your father knows you. What's he doing? Go behold the glory of God in his provisions and his knowledge and his control. When you behold the glory of God's sovereignty and what takes place is you don't have to be sovereign anymore. What's there to be anxious about? I'm beholding the glory of God and his sovereignty. He's the boss. He's in control. I have no reason to be anxious now. We could go on. Take your counselee to the character of God as he personifies and reveals himself in each of these ways. Let me finish just by giving you two practical assignments. Two practical assignments. And, and these are easy enough to where you could sketch these out for any counselee. Think of four criteria. One is that you're going to give them an attribute of God to go study. You pick it. Mercy, justice, wrath. You pick it. And then they're going to now go define that attribute of God. They're going to find scripture that supports it. They're digging. They're doing their own legwork. They're out laying out beside the pool in front of God. And then they're going to offer now a definition, the Bible verses that they found to support that definition of God's attribute. And then the two final things that you're going to say is, well, how do you see that attribute revealed in your life? It's the sovereignty of God. Where do you see the sovereignty of God manifested in your life? If you see the mercy of God, where is the mercy of God manifested in your life? So how is that attribute revealed in your life? And then finally, what should your response be toward that attribute? Just a perfect way of saying, you, be go, you go behold the glory of God. You go behold the glory of God, and as you do that, you'll be transformed into his likeness. The next one comes from Jim Berg's book. I would encourage you, you can Google this one. You'll find the study of God's attributes. And what he does is the same thing, but he takes the attribute of God and he provides it at the top. And then he lists the things that it convicts and confirms with you and how you should respond towards that attribute. Either of those, get this thrust. Get this thrust. This is the 2 Corinthians 3.18. That you're exposing your counselee to the glory of God. And in so doing, they will be transformed into his likeness. So let me share a story with you, and then I'll be done. This comes from John Piper. He, he took a risk one Sunday. He decided that he was going to preach on just an attribute of God. He wasn't going to do any application. He wasn't going to do any how-tos. He was just going to preach on the majesty of God. So this is the way he describes that. He says, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their trouble. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. 
Preaching does not have the aroma of God's greatness. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul. Show me thy glory. Years ago, during the January prayer week at our church, I decided to preach on the holiness of God from Isaiah 6. I resolved on the first Sunday of the year to unfold the vision of God's holiness found in the first four verses of the chapter. So I preached on the holiness of God and did my best to display the majesty and glory of such a great and holy God. I gave not one word of application to the lives of the people. Application is essential in the normal course of preaching, but I felt that it, that day I had to make a test. Would the passionate portrayal of the greatness of God in and of itself meet the needs of people? I didn't realize that not that long before this Sunday, one of the young families of our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were there that Sunday morning and sat under the message. I wonder how many advisors to us pastors today would have said, Pastor Piper, can't you see your people are hurting? Can't you come down out of heaven and get practical? Don't you realize what kind of people sit in front of you on Sunday? Some weeks later, I learned the story. The husband took me aside one Sunday after a service. John, he said, these have been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what's gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me the first week of January. It's been the rock that we could stand on. The greatness and the glory of God are relevant. It does not matter if surveys turn up lists of perceived needs that does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace. This is the deepest need. Our people are starving for God. No one on their PDI comes to counseling saying, I need my theology proper to be right. That's my presenting problem. No one's saying that. But you as counselor are thinking in the back of your mind, you need to behold the glory of God in this specific way. And as you do that, you will be translated and you will be transformed. And to use Piper's words, that's their deepest need. Thank you guys. Thank you for letting me be here with you. I'll stick around if you have questions. Enjoy lunch. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.